Morning, you step out of bed and into the whitewater raft that is your day. Paddle your guts out and try to miss that big rock. Ouch, never mind. But the river never stops. So wipe off the blood, paddle over to that flat spot on the bank, and we'll get some perspective together. The story's not about you, but if you can learn to see the whole river from Eden to the New Jerusalem, if you can learn to cry at the cross and sing at the empty tomb and trust God through the time in between, you won't just survive. You'll be ready to leave this world a little brighter than you found it. And then we'll get you back on the water. Welcome in, folks, to episode four of Eden to the City of God. I am your host, a co-host, uh, Ryan Bramley, here again with uh, Joe Anderson, co-creator and co-author of uh, the uh, Bible curriculum we've been talking about these previous episodes. Joe, why don't you start us off a little bit? Where are we at in the curriculum this this uh, this episode? Yeah, we're in lesson one point five of the. Um, for our school version, it's called He Shall Crush His Head. And then for homeschoolers or churches, we call the curriculum victorious. Um, we're right at the beginning. Total in all of the curriculum, there are is about 100 lessons that go through the Bible and then 50 lessons that go through worldview. We're right at the beginning of the first book here, going through, just working straight through our curriculum. And on the podcast, if, you've, if you're just joining us, we aren't going to teach the curriculum to you. You can read the book and study it on your own that way. We're just going to dig in deeper. We hope that this is valuable for your own personal study. If you're just dipping your toe in and want to test out the curriculum, you can download the first nine lessons on our website, Headwaters Resources. Dot org. Just go to the curriculum pages and you'll be able to find a, a subscription so that you can you can download and receive. You'll receive the podcast plus the, the lessons through those first nine lessons that we'll get to you. So, yeah. So in this lesson, Joe, we are in Genesis 2 uh, verses 18 through 25. And we're, we're not that far into the Bible yet. But if you're following along, uh, we have uh, Adam has been created and he's been placed in Eden, this this beautiful place. But we have a problem or God has identified a problem with the with the situation. And that is that Adam, a man, the first man ever created is alone. And this is the, the first um, situation uh, that God has had the occasion to describe as not good. So why don't we speak into a little bit? Why is this situation not good? I mean, it may seem obvious, but uh, Joe, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we talked in a, in a previous podcast episode, we talked about man being mankind, men and women being created in the image of God, that they were created male and female in order to reflect the Trinitarian image of God. So God is, it's like God created a single man and then in his image and then looked in the mirror and said, wait, that's not quite accurate. I'm supposed to, I'm, I'm, I'm representing my own image in this creation. And so I'm plural. So my creation therefore should be plural. That's kind of my read here as God goes, this is not good because this man doesn't accurately reflect the, my own image since he's just singular. And Joe, if I could jump in for a second here, and we think of God, obviously as Christians as a Trinitarian God, three in one. Uh, I remember I, I, I heard a, a pretty funny, but perhaps perfectly reasonable uh, objection from somebody once who said, you know, God is plural. So why would he then not create three genders? He's, he's a three in one God, a Trinitarian God. 
So why did he only create one other gender? Why not two? Well, I believe that God created men and women in order to reflect his image in relationship to him. And so we do have, um, it wasn't like God was created an image that could be separated from God and therefore accurately reflect his image without himself. So I believe that God is the third, the third the third part of this to complete the image of God is we have male, we have female in a relationship with God. In other words, God is not just creating a, a, a hermetically sealed, separated image of himself. He is incorporating us into the Trinitarian fellowship to be a part of, to share in that image of God. So since he creates one third of that, that Trinitarian relationship, we're not being created as an image that's hermetically sealed and separate from God. We're being incorporated into the very image of God. So it's not necessary that there be three to accurately represent it in that context. Before we get uh, too far into the creation of woman, first we want to get uh, chronologically something else out of the way that before woman is created, but after God identifies this problem of Adam being alone as not good, he brings before Adam all of the the beasts and the birds of the air, of every, all the animals that he's created. And he presents them to Adam to be named. So we want to talk about that a little bit. Um, maybe some of you have heard the Bob Dylan song, Man Gave Names to All the Animals, a very clever uh, take on this. He, is, he has decided that, that um, or he's brought the animals before Adam to be named. Why does he do this after he has decided, well, he's already decided that Adam needs a helper? Why chronologically is he is he doing this now with the the naming of the animals? I think I think God wants to bring Adam along to his perspective. Again, God is God is incorporating Adam and Eve, man and woman, humankind into his image. And so he's not just doing things to him. Now that Adam's created, he wants to bring Adam along in his thought process so that Adam can accurately reflect that same, the same ability to think and see the world. God created all of creation through a process of commanding, dividing, naming, and evaluating. Um, and now Adam gets to name, to join in that process and name the animals. And in doing that, he gets to see God's blueprint, God's framework for creating the world. And here come all of these animals, each with their own counterpart and their own male and female, each with their own helper. And he's observing that I'm not quite the same yet. I don't have all of these things in place. So Adam is, is fulfilling this calling to name just like God had named. God's pulling him into that creation process and then introducing himself to the same problem, the not good problem that God has seen. It says for Adam, no suitable helper was found. I think that's probably the greatest understatement in the history of the, the Bible. <laughs> uh, so as if to say, well, among the oxen and rabbits and giraffes and everything else, uh, there was no, I mean, obviously there was, there would be no companion for Adam because no, none of the animals were made with uh, intelligence and thought and feeling and emotion and all of these things. None of them had were created with the breath of God breathed directly into them. But let's talk about that word helper. There was no suitable, suitable helper found for Adam. And Joe, this is a, this could be a hot button word for yeah. some people. Uh, they would think, oh, a helper, a helper for Adam. What does Adam need? Some sort of domestic servant or just someone to uh, rear the children or to 
to help him in menial tasks. But obviously this word has larger, broader connotations than might be at first. Apparently. Yeah. And I think this is a great time to go ahead and introduce our guest this week, Emily Dunge. Um, we thought it was appropriate since we're talking about the creation of women to have a female guest to, uh, to join she us. Decades of experience in Dec- being, a being a female. So <laughs> Emily, tell us, uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Hi everyone. I'm glad to be here on the podcast and be the first female guest. So, um, I am married to Matt. I have experience um, being a female, of course, and being married for 12 years to Matt. We have three kids, McKenna, Levi, and Grace, who are 10, 8, and 4. So I stay home with them right now. I'm a stay-at-home mom and wife. And um, before I had kids, I, I was a social worker. I went to Calvin College and Biola University and studied social work and then DU for my master's degree in social work. So I worked um, for Child Protective Services and then um, in some schools as a school social worker. So I'm glad to be here today with you guys. Well, Emily, we appreciate having you here uh, so much. And uh, we have uh, your beautiful daughter Grace is upstairs romping around with uh, Joe's kids. So they may be making a unscheduled appearance here in the podcast at (laughs) some point. Grace Um, may visit. Emily, what you were raised in the church, right? Yes, I was. Yeah. Um, What kind of, what, did you ever have a sense of what you're growing up as a, as a girl, seeing your mom interact in the body of Christ and in your family, did you get a sense of what helper meant? Maybe, maybe it was an inaccurate sense, maybe not. And and how has that kind of shifted over your life? What do you think helper and what is your current taking it all the way through? What's your kind of current understanding of that word? That's a, that's a good question. I think that, um, I did have a role model in terms of my mom. She, um, and, and my grandmothers too, and my aunts, they were all, um, I was surrounded by real solid marriages where, um, my dad worked outside the home and my mom stayed home and, and raised us and, um, supported my dad and his career. And so that was my model. That was Matt, my husband's model too. His mom stayed home. And so there was always a lot of respect shown between my mom and dad for each other. And, um, I guess then as, you know, getting into college, I, and in the world a little bit in social work, I had a more feminist kind of, uh, not example is not the right word, but people who are expressing views of women are the same as men. There's no differences. And I thought, well, maybe I don't even want to have kids. And, and I really did actually walk away from my face and not walk with the Lord for quite a few years. But um, so when I first got married, it was hard for me to think of I'll have kids and stay home. That felt like a negative thing. But my what I saw growing up was it was a positive thing for our family. And um, not that women can't work outside the home or it's always right for women to stay home with the kids. But I think that in terms of being a helper as I've grown in my faith and knowing what God has to say about families. I think Matt and I can, you know, I can be a helper to him and support him. And it's for our family, it's a a positive thing for, for someone to be with the kids. In our case, it's me. And so I just see it as we're a team. He's out working, making the money, and I'm taking care of things at home. And I see it as we complement each other and God has given us different gifts. He's out there, you know, in the business world. And I'm 
with the kids. So that's kind of a long answer to your question, but I, I think I probably have gone back to what was modeled for me and kind of the roots of growing up in the church yeah. after being kind of in the world See, for a I while. Think, I, I think the, um, the world would look at your life and say, wow, you're really, you're really missing out on, on something here. Yeah. Um, you're, you could be out having a, a, a vibrant and lively career. You could have put off having kids a few more years. You could have, you could be doing so much with your life now. Do you feel, so it puts you on the spot. Do you feel unsatisfied or that you're missing out on something or is, is, is the, the family life and raising the kids, a, do you feel like it's suitable for your, your calling hmm. at this place in life? That's a really good question. I've wrestled with that a lot. I've stayed home now for 10 years. My oldest is 10. And so I have, I think what, what I'm surrounded with living in a secular city and, you know, time that I felt pressured, like I, what I'm doing is not valuable and I'm missing out. But on the other hand, if I think of where God has led me and he's given me the ability for now to stay home and I believe God's asked me to do that, I think I can find really great fulfillment in being home. And as I trust that this is where God has me and, um, am trying to be obedient to, to, to God's will for my life and our family's life. But it has been, I have struggled and wrestled with feeling like I'm missing out or, you know, I have really enjoyed my career as a social worker. And now I'm like, it's, it's hard to get back into it. And, mm -hmm. and so I'm just having to be in a place of dependence on God and, and trusting him and, and my husband. And this is where I am for now. But I think for most women, it's like, it's a battle for sure to, um, to, look at God's plan for families and see that their role is so important in raising kids and training them and um, being there for them. So, yeah, yeah if that makes sense. Totally makes sense. And I think the, the, the role of helper can take different forms. And I think it's sometimes hard to see the opportunity cost, right? If you, if you go out and have a career, most, most women who, who want to have a, a, a full career, you know, full and vibrant career, usually, you know, probably around their mid to late thirties, they, I think a lot of times they start feeling some level of regret if they haven't had kids by that time. And it's getting I think you know, so. close to time frame to where they, they're maybe going to miss out on that opportunity. There's some regret there. And then of course, if you stay at home with your kids for 10 years and you've lost, you know, your connections within your career and, you know, your credentials have lapsed or something like that, then mm -hmm. I could see there being some, some regret there too. I don't think it's all, you know, one's, one's right and what's wrong. Um, but I do think that, uh, that the default is kind of, let's put off having kids. And I think a lot of people end up regretting that. I don't think it's good for, for society either. So I, I admire, you know, what you've done and, and raising kids. And I think there's no, this is the future. Yeah. There's nothing more important than, than, you know, raising the future of our society. <laughs> well, you said that was society. one of the first things that God said to Adam and Eve is he asked them to be fruitful and multiply. And what he's talking about putting off kids, not, not even putting off kids. I think a lot of women and, and a lot of men too, put off uh, marriage or put off getting into a serious relationship, much less putting off having kids. And that act of participation in a family is so biblically rooted that that regret, I think that you talk about that some people have as they get older is, uh, is an opportunity cost. So it's, they've opted to, to try to have this career or they've opted for self aggrandizement and 
the result is that they've missed out in participating in, in in starting a family or participating in this thing that is so that is so rooted in the way that we were created and designed as part of the the greater plan for us as people. I like what you both just said, and I think that is what I have to remember as being a mom and staying home is that and having an eternal perspective, you know. I could have a career later in life when my kids are older, but I'll never get the chance to stay home with my kids and have children. You know, women have a window. And so even reading this lesson in this passage and talking about in, you know, in Psalms of with the blessing of children, I see people around me who maybe have waited to get married or have chosen not to have kids. I, I see some... Not not for everyone, but there is some some loss there and, and regret, like you said. Are you're hearing two messages? Our culture is saying to a mom like you that's you know decided to focus for a period of your life on having kids and raising them, you're missing out. You're missing out on on success in the business world and and you know a meaningful full life. And then you, and then you look at the scripture and, this, and God says, "Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it." And you're right in the right in the sweet spot biblically, but it's, it's, it's hard not to miss those voices that are saying, you know, you're missing out on all this other stuff. And so I think it takes, there's an uh, element of of faith that you're in, in God's will, even if, even if our culture gives you, sends you a different message. A lot of faith because the culture gives a loud message. So it's good to just be reminded of these passages and go back to scripture and be immersed in, in God's word. It's not just loud, Emily. It's, it's deafening. It's, it's, it's overwhelming the cultural messages that we get from media. It's almost hard to interact with the world at all anymore, except through media for a lot of people, Um, whether it's social media or radio or TV or, or what we get through the internet. It's uh, that message that comes from the greater uh, quote unquote culture is uh is a is just a blaring megaphone in your face all the time and so the the agenda that it's pushing is very persuasive it's persuasive and pervasive uh, both uh well i'm sure that we could keep going on this track for a long time but i i want to get into the nuts and bolts of how uh eve was created the first woman was created Some folks encountering Genesis for the first time might think, okay, well, we've identified the problem. We know that Adam is alone. We know that it's not good. So he's going to create woman here. He could simply uh, waggle his finger and boom, woman is created out of thin air. But that's not how he does it. So, Joe, I want you to speak a little bit about how uh, woman was not simply made or created. It's a different word that's used. And that word has its own, uh, just like we've been talking about the word helper, that word that is used to describe the creation of woman has its own connotations. So the, the way that God creates man is by first putting him to sleep. And I think this is important here because it's a picture of it's a picture of death. Um, when the man goes to sleep, he's in some kind of a coma or some kind of anesthetic, you know, rest, something like that. And he's experiencing some form of death. And then in that process of death, the woman is pulled out of his side or a part of his side is taken. Actually, in Hebrew, it doesn't say it doesn't say it was a rib. It says that God took of his side. It took took part of Adam straight out of his side. And then while he was sleeping, formed the woman or not formed. Actually, the word, the Hebrew word here is built. Um, that's not, not translated that way, but throughout Genesis one and two, the word, there's a couple of different words used for creation. One is 
one means to create out of nothing essentially, or to, to just create. Um, and another one means to form, which is to say, take something that's already created and shape it into something. This one is means to build. And it's, it's the same word that's used of building a house or building a city. So God took something out of Adam and out of that piece of Adam, he built something new. So the woman here is, is is God is taking a piece of the man and then building something. And I think this is important because it looks forward to the, just to jump all the way to the end of the Bible. And I think we do this almost every spoiler episode. Yeah. Spoiler alert. Here comes the end of the Bible again is the new Jerusalem is built by God for us to dwell in for eternity in the new Jerusalem. And we find, we see in Hebrews and some other places in the new Testament that the new Jerusalem is another term for the church, the body of Christ. And the body of Christ is like a a city um, that that is in relationship with God throughout the Bible. Cities or Jerusalem specifically are female. Their female pronouns are used. And then of course the 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 church is the bride of Christ, the the female body that's that's formed from Jesus. And so you get this great imagery in the New Testament when Jesus dies, they come up and they pierce his side and blood and water flow out of the side of Jesus. And of course, we, the the church are formed through baptism in water and, and eating and drinking the body and blood of Christ. So the church is continually formed out of the body of Christ in the act of baptism and communion. So we have a very early picture of that, that we are reflecting that image in the church of the creation of woman out of Adam. And ultimately God is building a glorious city from the people of God. So I think this is, this is not, not nothing like, um, you know, the woman secondary to man or something like that, because she was taken out of man. The woman is the glory of the man. Men and women are different. I know our culture has has lost the ability to tell the difference between boys and girls, but we, we look at this and men and women are different. We're created with, um, a, a unity, but also a distinction in, in purpose and a distinction in abilities. And so the woman here taken out of man's side is like, is the glory of man removed from him and created separately in order to be brought back together into oneness. It's a beautiful picture. Um, It's not nothing to be ashamed of, to be male or female. Men men are missing something. It's been removed from us and we need it back. And the way we get it back is through uh, unity with, with women through marriage. Well, Joe, there's so much to unpack about what you just said. There's so much richness and, and, uh, that's a nice way of saying you were all over the place. Uh, I'm, <laughs> I'm kidding. There's a lot to, to talk about there, but this unity that you're talking about is interesting because you point out it's important that students who are learning this or people who are reading through this curriculum see that man and woman were united from the very beginning because woman was created from a piece of man. So the fact that man and woman were unified from the beginning, how does that relate to the image of God then? Well, I think this is, we see this in the the Nicene Creed that says that uh, the son proceeds from the father and then the spirit proceeds from the father and from the son. So we have this with the, with the, with the Trinity, we have this oneness and unity thing going on at the same time. I mean, this is the great, 
paradox mystery of the Trinity is that somehow they're unified and yet distinct persons. Um, And the way that's articulated in the Nicene Creed is that there's a procession. So the son proceeds from the father, which means that the son was, is unified with the father, but then comes out from the father. And then the spirit um, proceeds from the father and from the son. And and then in the, the, the New Testament in, in the Gospel of John, uh, Jesus says that I was sent by the Father, and now I'm going to send the Spirit to you. And so, this the Nicene Creed is it wasn't just that that idea of procession wasn't just invented. It's a a kind of a reverse engineering of what we saw with Jesus is the father sent the son and the son sent the spirit, but it's not, it's not, there's a, there's an eternal procession. There's the son is always proceeding from the father and the spirit is always proceeding out from the son, but there's also an, an eternal unity. And so the, the spirit and dwelt body of Christ comes back into unity with Christ through marriage and then the father and then and then the the new jerusalem is indwelt by god the father god himself comes and there's no need for the son in the new jerusalem because god itself is the light so there's there's this eternal procession and there's also an eternal unity that goes on and man and woman it, and the the relationship between a, a man and a woman is reflecting that so the woman comes out of the man and then is brought back together in, into a glorified unity and a married adam and eve is more glorious than adam with a, a rib in his side. So there's a, p- part of the taking out and bringing back together is a reflection of the eternal procession and the eternal unity of the spirit. But that putting back together glorifies them both in one. I just want to highlight this one line that, uh, that you and Tim Nichols, who's the co-creator of the curriculum uh, wrote here. It says, don't let your students miss the point of Genesis 2.24. And if we look at uh, quickly at, at uh, Genesis 2.24, it says, for this reason, a man will leave his mother and father and be united to his wife and they will become one flesh. It says, don't let your students miss the point of Genesis 2.24. Marriage now is the way it is because God made man and woman and marriage in the way that he did. The creator has the right to define how marriage works and thousands of years later, it still works that way. It's so interesting to me that that one line in the curriculum could be interpreted by some people today as a, as an explosively charged uh, political um, statement. And Joe, I, I just wanted you to expand on this a little bit and, and maybe talk a little bit about the way this design for marriage, which seems so simple and so intuitive has become uh, such a divisive in some ways and an explosively controversial thing. Yeah. Well, that, that little, that sentence that you read right there, that would be by the, the thought police in our culture, that would be considered a, a, an abs, a statement of absolute hate that marriage should be between a man and a woman because God created it that way in the beginning. That, that is a, like you said, explosive, absolutely horrendous. The worst, one of the worst possible things you could say is that marriage or is very between, one-sided, very yeah. uh, dictatorial. Yeah. Um, Who to, are you to say that it has to be between a man and a woman? And I think what that, what, what we're seeing here is, it's not as though our culture just kind of 
a characterization of this that you might hear from on CNN is that we we've been growing and our you know we didn't have gay marriage before, but we've been learning and now we're a more a more mature a more evolved society and we see now that you can put two men together and it it works great. But actually, it, it's not it's it's fruitless. Gay marriage is fruitless and God created um, be fruitful and multiply is the first command He gave to us. And so I think what we're seeing in our culture is a hatred for God's design and a hatred for fruitfulness, um, which I think is destructive to the, since we were created for fruitfulness is destructive to people. And so when I say something that's so volatile in our curriculum, it's so volatile in our culture, it's such a, such a horrible thing to say, but it's so loving because people want to be fruitful. Um, as soon as the gay couples get together, they want to figure out, well, how can we have kids? We got to adopt them or, you know, make them somehow. And then every, every son or daughter ever born has a father and a mother. It's just sometimes those are absentee fathers and mothers. There's no way around it. This is a, a biological fact that God has built into the woman is that kids come fruitfulness happens because of men and women, whether it happens in a test tube or not, there's no, there's no shortcut. There's no way to, to, to get around this process. Well, part of the animosity, I think from, I would say the gay community is that they obviously feel that Christians have cornered the market on marriage or they're, they're not saying that God has defined it because they may not, of course, recognize God or believe in God. They are saying that Christian people or people who are identifying as Christians have claimed marriage as their own and have have cornered that market and have staked that claim and that they are forbidden to use that word. But I think you've just outlined some of the some of the problems that can arise from from that community claiming marriage in the same way that that Christians do. Yeah, I think what my my answer to that would be, I can't possibly act outside of the created order as it's revealed in scripture. So I'm not allowed as a Christian to let them redefine the terms for me when they go and define marriage as being something that could be between a man and a woman, but also perhaps between two men or two women. That's the equivalent of saying we could have round circles or we could have square circles or we could have triangular circles. We get, we can do it. We can do circles any way we want to do it. It's, but it's not, that's not the reality. And so, um, I, I want to delve into this idea of fruitfulness that you're talking about, Joe and Emily, mm-hmm. both of you have what would by secular standards be considered large families. Joe, you have three kids with another on the way. And Emily, you have three, uh, when you were thinking, and I'm sure this was not a, a, a one evening discussion, but where did this idea of having a larger family, uh, again, by our standards, uh, secular standards, cultural standards of the United States today, where did this idea of having a larger family come into play for you, Emily? For me, definitely from the Bible, be fruitful and increase in number. Because really, if you look at our culture, it's, you know, it's to have kids, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of time and, you know, sacrifice. You don't have a lot of, you know, Matt and I don't have free time for ourselves to go do what we want. We can't travel around and we have these three kids. And so um, I think just by reading the Bible, I knew that God wanted us to have kids and, um, train them to know the Lord and the wisdom and instruction of the Lord. And we are open, you know, to more kids, whether that is, you know, 
through adoption or however it looks like because of our, our faith and our belief in God. Joe, you want to add to that? Yeah, I think I would say the same thing and, and add that it for me, and I'm, I'm sure it's true for Matt and Emily for as well, is that it was a scriptural command that resonated deeply with me. Like I want, I want this. And I, and then that's the way I, I, that's the way God's commands are is when we're in, in, when our minds aligned with his mind, we desire what he desires. And so the command is not burdensome. I mean, that, that doesn't make making, having, having children easy, but it does, it's still, it's, it's exciting. It's fun. It's because it's a, it's, it's a, a match between what I'm created for, what me and my wife are created for and what we're actually doing. So that match brings fulfillment, fulfillment of purpose in our lives. And I think that's, um, I, people who say, I don't want, you know, I don't want to marry couples. I know that just have chosen not to have kids because it sounds hard or whatever. I feel like they're like, there's no possible way I, I could explain them out of that They're but they're missing out immensely. And of course, there's plenty of people who would like to have kids but aren't able to. And that's it's a tragedy um, because it's such a beautiful thing. I'm glad you added that, Joe, uh, in terms of the fulfillment and the desire you had. I made it sound like it. I, Matt and I, you know, we read the Bible and it was command. But really, I greatly desired to have children. And so did Matt. We love children. And it brings so much blessing and joy. It's, it's really hard work. It's not always easy, but, um, there is a lot of, a lot of purpose in having children and, and, and raising them. Apart from just going back to the idea of, of marriage and apart from, from what both of you have found in your own marriages from having children, I also wanted to delve just briefly into this idea of what you provide each other within the marriage, um, as counterparts. So, Emily, I'd be interested to hear your perspective of what you feel you bring into your marriage in terms of being the female counterpart to Matt. Um, what do you feel that your role is in that way within your marriage? Yeah, and I, I would add, add to that question to, to think in terms of we didn't we didn't dig into what what helper meant too much, um, but what I think that's this. As a, as a part of the answer to the question, what does it mean? What does it mean for you to be a helper? Um, and what is like, I want to explore the definition of that term. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, uh, there's a lot of different parts to that. So I think I'm a support for Matt and an encouragement to him. And then there's the other side of like actually caring for the children that we have and, you know, providing food for our family and organizing our house and our life. But I think, I don't know, just being his friend, you know, and, um, other aspects of his personality that you, that you feel you compliment or that you, um, perhaps soften his edges or, uh, I, I always think of the old, um, Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers weren't married, but they say that, uh, they, they always used to say that Ginger Rogers gave him sex and gave her class or something like that. Um, <laughs> I, I, you probably uh, certainly would class up Matt quite a bit. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that, <laughs> but just in terms of, of aspects of his personality that you feel are good counterpart to or counterbalance to. 
I think, I don't know if you'd agree, Joe, with you and Becca, but for Matt and I and a lot of my friends, um, we married people who are really different than us. And so there is a lot of ways we compliment each other. You guys know Matt is the most extroverted, outgoing person on earth and just like (laughs) in the moment. And he's not a planner. You know, I'm more, a little bit more introverted and reserved. And so I don't know, we balance each other out. He's really fun and crazy and I can be more type A you know, and I like to have fun too. And we like to have fun together. But, um, I think, gosh, God brought us together. We are so different and we can't come from such different families. And it's just, as we get down the road in marriage, it's, it's of course so exciting at first, but when you get down to having kids and everything else, it's, you know, it's, it's hard work, although marriage is really, really wonderful. But I think that God, it's clear that God brought us together so we can, you know, we have this neighborhood ministry and we both have different gifts in terms of, you know, Matt being the life of the party or me organizing things more or doing better in one-on-one situations or, you know, I'm a, a social worker. So counseling people and having some more empathy than Matt, you know, he's just like, high on life all the time. He maybe couldn't have so much empathy always for not to say he's not caring uh, or anything or kind, but we just, we have different strengths that, that I think, you know, really God wants us to serve together in our community and where he has us. So Joe, just building on what Emily said, how would you relate that to your own marriage in terms of how uh, Becca is a, a helper to you? Yeah, I would say a lot of the, a lot of the same things. I think um, I'm not as life of the party as Matt, but uh, I, I have the kind of adventure, you know, let's just jump into it and figure it out, plan as we go, which some people say isn't planning if you're doing it as you go. But that's kind of my attitude. And Becca's very, she's thoughtful. And man, I just, I, I think about how much of, I think, I guess a lot of what I think about sometimes is how much of a mess my house would be if we didn't have Becca. Parts of it still are a mess. Actually. Well, yeah, she's, she's, she allows me to like have my, you know, little separate areas that (laughs) where I can be messy in, but it's interesting in our shared areas. Part of what she does for me is, is makes me the kind of person that is more organized. Um, it's not that, you know, she's always walking around and cleaning up messes after me. Maybe, maybe she's, she would say differently, but I feel like I've, you know, when we're together, I am, I'm, I try to clean up more and be a part of, you know, my, my chaotic kind of disorganized nature is, is brought into a more productive direction through kind of what we have in our marriage. Okay. Well, shifting gears here before we wrap up, I just want to touch on this. Uh, this is the last part of the, the Bible verse that we have in this uh, section of the curriculum where we leave it is that Adam and Eve are together in the garden uh, in this first marriage. And the author of this verse goes out of his way to mention that they are uh, both naked and felt no shame. And that's where our section ends here. Why do you think that that point is specifically spelled out for the, for the readers here? Well, this is, this is setting up part of the, part of the context here is it's setting up the fall. The very next verses, here comes the serpent. Now the serpent, which was more crafty than any other animal comes along. And so it's saying that there's a, in, in the context of the fulfilled creation, the woman now being created, it was not good before. And now it's very good because there's man and woman unified in marriage and in a state of 
of innocence or not perfection in the sense of fulfillment, but perfection in the sense of lack of any wrong. There's Adam and Eve are are perfectly free from any shame because they are fulfilling God's purpose and there's no sin on the earth. Shame comes in between every, every relationship. I think that's the big thing that we battle against in marriage nowadays is that we have doubts, fears, shame, guilt. Um, but going back to that shame, shame is drives people apart because you don't want to address that. You want to, instead of addressing the shame and opening up to each other, you hide. And that's, that's what we see coming up in the next chapters. As soon as Adam and Eve eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they go and they hide from each other. They make clothes, they hide from God. And I think that's the beauty about marriage in context of a relationship with God is through the process of forgiveness and finding peace is that we can have shame free marriages that give us perfect freedom within that to be um, metaphorically and literally naked with each other. There is something so beautifully cinematic about what's happening in this first part of the Bible. And um, and it's almost like that part of the movie where everything seems to be going just wonderfully. And then the villain is right just about to be introduced. And so we see them together living in, in this first marriage in uh, unity with God. And as we'll see in our, our next episode, the next section of the curriculum, we're going to be introduced to uh, the serpent and it's all about to, to change forever. So we're going to leave it there for, for today. And uh, Emily, I want to thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. We're just about yeah. to... In, Thanks in, for having in, me. Mere moments, we'll be hearing the voice of your daughter, McKenna, reading our credits. And we uh, uh, have not mentioned that before on our podcast, but we really appreciate McKenna participating and helping us out and reading the credits. She did an amazing job with that. I'm glad you asked her. I'm glad she could do it. Yeah. Sounds great. Yeah. Thanks for joining us, Emily. And we'll dig in deeper next time. headwatersresources.org to download our podcast and check out our entire line of books for you and your family. Our podcast was created and produced by Joe Anderson and Ryan Bramley. Our theme music was written by Pacifica. Our narrator is Tim Nichols. In our next episode, we take one more step through the Bible. For Ryan and Joe, this is your official announcer, McKenna Dunch, saying goodbye for now, and may the peace of the Lord be with you.